Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. We started this, and last week I told you that we were ending kind of the second section of the series. If you guys remember the series, we had like this introduction section, Paul and his letter to the Corinthians saying, hey, you got all these issues. I'm going to help you address them. Here's the foundation we got to build on. When I was with you, I knew nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified, the person and work of Jesus. And then we talked about the covenant of redemption that before God said, let there be light, he said, let there be salvation. And that God chose you before the foundation of the earth, that he wanted to love you and invite you into a covenant with him, knowing good and well that the first covenant, we wouldn't be able to fulfill that and that he would have to reestablish a covenant. The law was never the goal. The covenant with Adam was never the goal. It was always about the covenant with God through Christ Jesus. And all of that was established in the divine economy before the world was ever even formed. And then we talked about Christ and creation. And then we talked about the fullness of the Word of God. All 3.5 million characters, letters, punctuation, all of that points directly to Jesus. We talked about that. And that ended the first section, the introductory section to our series. And then we went into what constitutes the humiliation of Christ. That is, he came down. God incomprehensibly made man. He took on flesh. He didn't set his deity aside because God can't stop being God. No, he took flesh upon himself and set his glory aside. And in doing that, he was born. And we talked about the sovereignty of God and how God will move the heavens and the earth just to take a young girl a few miles because his will will be accomplished. And then we flowed into the early childhood, the circumcision, the first shedding of blood of Jesus on the earth. And then we went into his baptism and temptation. And then we went into the calling of the disciples. And then we went into his ministry of miracles. And then we went into his ministry of teaching. And that brought us to where we're at now. And what we are going to do now, the next section, is when his humiliation the lessening of Jesus, and when I say lessening, I talk about the gradual descent until he goes into the uttermost parts of the earth. That process kind of amps up after the Passover. He, uh, he goes up to 30 years from incarnation. There's a setting of the glory aside. There's a humiliation there. But from the moment he was born until the age of around 33, he's pretty much on a plateau. Yeah, there's some persecution. There's some obstacles. There's some resistance. There's a few little situations. But pretty much it's just a plateau. But then his humiliation and his descent really amps up when he's about the age of 33, 33 and a half. And it starts with the Passover and Gethsemane. And that's where we're going to be at today. So before we go anymore, I'm going to read uh, Mark 14, chapter 20, or chapter 14, verse 22. And we're just going to read about 20 verses, and then we're going to just kind of talk for a little while. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks, and he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, as if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. And then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou will. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? 
Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saith to them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. So, to be honest, I struggled with how to preach this passage. I've preached Getsemane once before in the last year since I've been here, and one thing I hate doing is re-preaching the same message. I will hardly ever, if ever, do that. And so I was like, well, i got to preach Getsemane, and I, it, Lord, are you wanting me to re-preach the same passage? Because I don't want to just be stubborn and arrogant. I know I'm stubborn, and I know that I have issues, but <laughs> we all got issues. I know I've got issues, but I don't want to just be contrary for contrary's sake. Is this what you're asking me to do? But I didn't have peace with it. And so then I was reading in Ephesians 5, and I was reading about the marriage covenant and different things, and I was like, oh, like, Lord, are you wanting, and I didn't have peace about that, and I've just prayed through and prayed through until finally I was like, God, I have no idea how to do this, and it didn't get resolved until last night. And it's some kind of weird combination of all of them. So if this doesn't make sense, I'm sorry. Try to pick out pieces as we go along and see where you're at. (laughs) But I wanted to share with you one thing. I know I say often, this is my favorite passage. And it usually is whichever passage I'm looking at at the particular time. But this may not be my favorite passage of Scripture, but Getsemane has always been really important to me. And the reason that it's always been really important to me is because when I got saved, you guys know, my, some of you know part of my testimony throughout my entire life, I never really felt like anyone chose me. I felt like I was like an add-on or a responsibility and like they really wanted to choose this and to choose this, I had to come with that. And so I never really felt like anyone chose me. And after I became a Christian and I was reading and studying, I came to Mark 14 and began to read about Getsemane and it clicked. This is... Jesus chose me here. Look, I know covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world, the plan of adoption, we were on his mind. He worked out all things and chose us there. That's right. That's talk. That's a conversation. But this is where the rubber meets the road, where Jesus actually says, yes, I'm going to go through this because I want you. This is where he chose me. See, talk is cheap. It's easy to say all kinds of things. A lot of people say that they're a Christian. (laughs) but then the walk portion and the carrying it out is a little bit of a different story talk is cheap you can say anything a lot of people prophesy and when they're prophesying they're really prophesying you know like they they, they're saying it but there ain't no truth to it it's like and i love it when people lay hands and they give the most general prophecy that they could possibly give like that could apply to anybody that could even apply to my dog like (laughs) that just because you're saying this like let's see how it turns out Let's, let's see what happens, because that used to be the Old Testament judge of whether somebody was a prophet. They prophesy, okay, when it happens, okay, now we know you're a prophet. But nowadays, we just say whatever. We don't judge it, we don't test it. So anything can be said. So I love the covenant of redemption, and I'm not taken away from that, because this is where the economy was established, and where God said, I will orchestrate their salvation, and Jesus said, I will accomplish their salvation. The Holy Spirit said, I will appropriate the finished work of Christ to them. So that's important, but it, it's still just a conversation. Getsemane is where Jesus, in not just his divine nature, because the divine nature is always ready, but in his human nature. See, God is One nature in three persons. Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He is vero homo vero deus, meaning truly God and truly man. He is both, two natures. And his divine nature, yeah, let's go. But getting a human nature to come on and endure that much pain and that much suffering, that's a different conversation. But this is the moment where his human nature said yes. The moment where he said yes to me. All the rest of it doesn't matter unless he says yes here. See, the the covenant of redemption, the incarnation, the 33 years of ministry, of life and ministry, that's great. The miracles, that's great. 
But if he doesn't say yes here and embrace the passion and the suffering that is to come, it's all for naught because we're still not saved. We're still not redeemed. He has to say yes in this moment. And I love the author of Hebrews, the way he puts it. He says in chapter 12, he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. When he says endured the cross, he's talking about the entire situation, suffering, and passion that has to do with that whole event. He endured that for the joy that was set before him. See, the joy that was set before him is the promise of his relationship with us in eternity, us having an eternal intimacy with the Father through Jesus Christ, encapsulated by the work of the Spirit. All of that is the joy that was set before him. See, we think of it as like God begrudgingly saved us because he had to have people to worship him. But the truth is, he delivers us because he delights in us. It was his joy to do it, even though there was suffering attached to it. He said yes here. And the beautiful thing about this is what he is actually accomplishing is a redemption or a restoration of marriage. It's a restoration of the covenant. See, there was a situation where God created man and woman and there was a covenant established between God and man and it was in a garden and then man and woman, they kind of violated and broke that covenant in the garden and then there was another covenant established and we always think the covenant of law, this is how we, they were supposed to do and then they broke that covenant. Well, the truth is, is that the covenant of the law was just given to show them that they had already broken the Adamic covenant in the Garden of Eden. That's why God says, Behold, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah after those days. And this is the covenant that I will make with them. Not a covenant according to the one that I made with their fathers when the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not. See, we were technically in covenant, married to God. Spiritual Israel, married to God. The church, married to God in the Adamic covenant. And we walked away from it through Adam and Eve. We walked away from it. Israel was just carrying out that walking away. And so in the garden, Jesus is restoring and bringing back that original covenant. That's beautiful. And when in Ephesians 5, what I, had, what I saw that made me want to tether the passages together is he's having this conversation about, you know, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Like, we always look at that and we're like, oh, this is instructions about marriage. And yeah, there's some practical application here. But the main thrust of that passage isn't about what you're supposed to do. It's about what's been done. Because in Ephesians 5, starting in 22 and the rest of the chapter, he's talking about husband and wife. And he is comparing that to the relationship of, between Christ and the church. And when he goes down, he says, this is a great mystery. But I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ in the church. The thrust of the passage is not about husband and wife. Although we can pull practical value from that, the thrust of the passage is about Christ's relationship to the church. And if you go to the next chapter, Ephesians 6, and it begins, it starts talking about children and their relationship to their father. That's not about kids and their parents, although there's practical value. That's about us being the children of God. And then the next section is about masters and servants. That's not about slaves and their masters. It's about us being the servants and following the leadership and the mastery of the Holy Spirit. It's the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. But we always look at the Bible through the lens of us. When really the, we should look at the Bible through the lens of Him. So what Christ is accomplishing in the garden is a restoration. That's why in Ephesians 5, when Paul's talking about this, he said, For this cause a, husband, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. Nevertheless, I speak concerning Christ and the church. Because that is the words that were spoken about Adam and Eve in Genesis right before the covenant was broken. That was the words that were spoken. So you have in Ephesians what Paul is describing as the restoration of the covenant between God and spiritual Israel, the church, his bride. That's what you have going on here. And Christ is restoring that in Gethsemane. He is restoring what was broken in a garden. He is restoring it in a garden. Does that make sense? Now I want to look at something. Because... I talked about 
this, this anxiety, the human nature. And when you read the prayer of Christ, even what says before, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death, you read that, and then you read his prayer, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You sense and you can feel the weight of stress and the weight of anxiety. So much so that Luke tells us, the doctor tells us, that he sweat great drops of blood. He sweat great drops of blood. You know, this is a condition. It's called like hypodrosis or drasis or something like that. It's actually a medical condition. I read an article about a 12-year-old girl that experienced this recently. And what it is, is it is your emotions and your stress become so prominent that it causes the blood vessels that are attached to your sweat glands to burst, to rupture. And then that blood from those busted blood vessels seeps into your sweat and you, blo- you sweat out blood. That's what's happening. The weight is so stressful, so agonizing, so intense that it causes his blood vessels next to his sweat glands to rupture. And then he sweats out great drops of blood. It's rare, but it's entirely possible. And he is taking this stress on him because he's saying yes. Because he's saying yes. That is just absolutely incredible to me. You know, I've read this passage a lot. And one thing I've never realized, you know how when you read scripture, you kind of like picture what it would be like in your mind and you have some ideas and then later you're like, wait, why does that really fit? Let me, let me think about this. If you closed your eyes and you tried to picture Samson, what would you picture? You probably picture a strong man, right? Somebody with big muscles. Why? Scripture never tells us that Samson looked big. He could have been a scrawny man. If you have a 130-pound man come to a city and pull the gate up, like that's going to be miraculous and impressive. And often God chooses the weak things to confound the wise. So Samson doesn't necessarily have these big bulging muscles looking like you know Stone Cold Steve Austin with long hair. Like He doesn't necessarily look like uh, steroided up Arnold Schwarzenegger. But that's what we often picture, even in like the cartoons. Samson's always buff. Like, I'd love to see a cartoon where Samson's like scrawny. <laughs> like, you see his ribs poking out. Like, that would be cool. <laughs> but you get these ideas in your mind, and you don't really, they don't really have any scriptural backing. We just have them. Like, we, everybody says, the, know, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. What was it? Everybody thinks, oh, it's an apple. Like, why? It doesn't say that. But we, we form these things because they're opinions. Somebody says it, and we take it, and we run with it. One of those things that I have done is when I picture the Passover and Jesus taking the bread and breaking it, I always pictured him as like breaking off a piece of the bread himself and taking it. And I always pictured him as taking the cup and blessing it and then drinking it and then handing it to the disciples. But one thing that I've realized is that you can't take one gospel account of a situation by itself because you have to have all the gospels to form the complete picture. Faith was doing a study on the Great Commission and found out some really awesome stuff. I'm not going to steal her thunder. She can preach that later. But she was doing some awesome stuff, and it took all four Gospels to complete that picture. And that's what I'm talking about is in the Passover, it takes all four Gospels to really complete the picture. And what you have in the Gospel of Luke is Jesus never drinks from the cup. He never drinks. I always said, well, I will drink no more of this, meaning, oh, I took a sip, I'll not drink it again. But it actually expressly says he doesn't drink from the cup. He won't drink from the cup until he gets to drink it in the kingdom. Because what is happening here is he has another cup prepared for him. He has another cup waiting on him. So he takes the cup, he blesses it, and he says, divide it among yourselves. This is the blood of the New Testament. Divided among yourselves. Because he has another cup that he's going to drink in the garden. And the cup that he's going to drink in the garden is the cup of God's wrath mixed with dregs. And what that is, is that's God's wrath against sin mixed with the curse and sickness and death and all of these horrific things that are brought about by sin. And Jesus is going to that garden, not just to take sin, not just to take the curse, but to literally become it. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
We are redeemed from the curse, for Christ became a curse. As it is written, cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. He was becoming something, taking that curse. I don't think that Christ was stressed out about having to deal with people. I don't think that he was stressed out about having to be beaten. I I mean, I know that that's intense and that's scary for anybody, but I don't think that that's what he was stressed out about. What I think he was stressed out about is he was looking at God forsaking him and abandoning him and treating him like sin and the curse. Think about the person you love most on this world and think about them hating you and punishing you and taking all their anger and their hate out on you and how that would devastate you. And this is what Christ is looking at. He is looking at His Father in heaven who is about to take all of His wrath against all sin for all time out on His only begotten Son because He is saying yes to you. That's intense. That is intense. And that's what's happening. He takes the cup that He didn't deserve so that we could get the cup that we didn't deserve. Because the cup that we're getting is a cup of blessing and a cup of favor and a cup of the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the cup that He hands to us and then He goes and takes the cup that we deserve which is the curse and death and the wrath of God upon our disobedience. That's the cup that He was about to drink. So yeah, I think it stressed Him out a little bit. But I love what he does in this, is he just resigns his will to the will of the Father. He just resigns his will to the will of the Father. Not what I will, but what you will. See, Matthew gives us another thing. See, Mark and Luke and even John, when they talk about this, they're very minimal on what they say. And it says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. But Matthew shows how the prayer progresses. And at the end of it, he just says, if this cup isn't going to pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Showing he had resigned himself and was going to do it. And that progression is necessary for us to understand what Christ is doing here. He prays three times, once for the spirit, once for the soul, once for the body. Because he is taking the curse in each of the areas of our life upon himself. And allowing himself to become that which is killing us. The fulfillment of Moses and the bronze serpent. The serpents were killing the people. Moses made the image of the thing that was killing them. Held it up. They looked on the image of death and they were healed. Jesus became the thing that was killing us. We look at him through faith and we are healed and redeemed. That's what's going on here. But this is that transition part, that great exchange, that is the exchanging of the cups. He gives us a cup we didn't deserve and takes the cup he didn't deserve. Amen. I'll say amen. You don't have to. I'll do it. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But all of that is a foundation. There's the introduction of this message. All of that's a foundation for where I want, I believe God's wanting to take us this morning. What I believe God's wanting to do is to show us something about prayer this morning. That's what I believe. And I've had several confirmations about that. But one thing that I noticed... And I look at things weird sometimes. It's just part of who I am or who God's made me to be. But one thing I notice is that as the passage progresses, Jesus instructs the disciples differently. See, one had already left, right? They started with 12. One had already left. And then he had 11. And then he gives an instruction to the 11. But then he takes three. And he gives an instruction to the three. And then he gives an instruction to the three again. And I began praying about this, and I don't often have, like, I see cool things. God will show me awesome things, and I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. Literally last night when God showed me this, I just fell on my face. So it, it, I've heard that it has to burn in your heart before it can burn in your congregation's heart. It's burning in my heart. So we'll see. We'll see. But there's a progression, or rather a degression going on here. And... It's about the depths of prayer. About the depths of prayer. You have, Jesus has his ministry. You have tens of thousands of people because they're being blessed by Jesus, fed by Jesus, miracles done, but they're not here. He takes the 11 and he brings them and he says, I want you guys to sit right here. I want you guys to sit here. 
in the garden. They're with him. I want you to sit right here. See, the first realm of prayer is to dwell with God, to rest in him. This is, there's no responsibility. You're not asking God for anything. God's not asking you for anything. It's just intimacy. It's just, hey, rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Stay here. Be with him. Rest in the work that he's accomplished. He's not telling you to do anything. He's not asking anything from you. You're not asking anything of God. I know we like to come to God with our grocery list. This isn't about that. This is about just being in his presence. Look, I talked about it being the restoration of the marriage covenant. I love my wife. But if every time I went to her, all I did was ask her for stuff, or if the only conversation we ever had was about business or about church stuff or about the kids, like we've had, like we've went through weeks and it's like the only conversation we had was about stuff that we had to get done or about conversations that we had to have. That, there's no intimacy in that. There's no relationship in that. You're business partners. You're just working together towards a common goal. But the best times in marriage, the best conversation we have is when we just get to be together. Watching a show, reading books, just sitting and talking about nothing, about anything. That's the first realm of prayer. It's just to dwell with God. Just to be with Him. The sad part of it is, is the vast majority of people that call themselves Christians don't ever make it there. They don't ever make it to the garden. Because they're running around like Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They're wheeling and dealing, making trades. Come on, I know ministry. I know ministry. And we're like, we're going to set up these strategies. We're going to formulate these plans. We're going to buy this property. We're going to sell that property. Well, statistically, this is what we have. The entire series that we're doing is in response to the Judas mentality. See, we like to think bad about Judas, but he was with Jesus for three and a half years, and yeah, he had his issues. He was focused so much on money that that became his God. But I truly believe that he loved Jesus because he had enough remorse to where he ended up killing himself afterwards. He just couldn't get the greed away from him. He couldn't get out of the bondage. And we, in the church... Say we love Jesus, and maybe there's some truth to that, but we won't spend enough time with Him to just dwell with Him. We never make it to the garden. We're too busy prostituting Jesus. Selling Him for 30 pieces of silver. Hiring the best speakers to come in, or the best worship leaders, and idolizing people rather than just getting with God. That's why I told you, the only thing that is required for us to have church is to be in the same building and say, Lord, we want you. But no, we don't just want Jesus. We want Jesus and a great preacher. You're welcome. Or Jesus and a great worship leader. Or we want Jesus and a really nice facility. Or we want Jesus and a really big conference. Or we want Jesus and a really big statewide ministry. You know, something that God has had to deal with me on is my mind always like, it's part of the American mentality and the way you're raised. You always want bigger and better, Right? Your church is 20 people, well, I want it to be 30. Your church is 30 people, well, I want it to be 50. It's 50 people, well, I want it to be 100. It's 100 people, well, I want it to be 200. And like, I'm not saying that the church shouldn't grow, but why is that the focus? What's wrong with having a church with 30 people? If the presence of God is there, hallelujah. It only takes two. <laughs> What's wrong with having a small church if the presence of God shows up? What's wrong with having a church that just barely makes budget. Who cares if the presence of God shows up? Take it all. But we don't want to just dwell with Jesus. We want Jesus and. So we're running around like Judas. And I watched a thing one time that said Judas was a zealot and he was actually trying to get Jesus to fulfill what his opinion of the Messiah was. So he was trading Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because he was wanting Jesus to rebel and to call all of those people that he knew would support Jesus to war against Roman oppression. So he thought he was just going to help Jesus manifest his destiny. I'm not saying that that's what's going on in Judas's mind. I know that Judas was just betraying Jesus for money. But the thought process is, what if Judas did have an idea of working out something good and he was just trying to help God out a little bit? 
He was treating the church as a business. And he never made it to the garden. He traded Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He prostituted the gospel. We do this all the time. There are people that are on TV, big name evangelists, and they're like, hey, give me 20 bucks, God's going to do this miracle. Give me 50 bucks, God's going to do this miracle. (laughs) Hey, it's the 33rd day of the year. Send me $333 and God will do this for you. They're prostituting the gospel. And they're walking in the same spirit that Judas walked in. I love generosity and I want you to give because I want God to bless you. But I don't care about your money. And I say that, I don't say that like braggingly. I just don't care. I just don't care. And maybe that's a bad thing. My stepdad used to always tell me before he died, he used to always say, well, you just don't care about nothing. And he always meant it in a derogatory way. And it's like, yeah, you're kind of right. I just don't. And so when I became a Christian, it's like, Jesus, I don't care. Broke, lame, maimed. I don't, I don't care. Let's just go. <laughs> but the truth is, is that we are supposed to be carefree. We're supposed to be free of care because we're supposed to cast all our cares on him. And if we cast all our cares on him, then we're not going to have any cares left, right? Our hands are going to be empty. I love it when people come to Jesus and they got all this baggage and they're like, hey, Jesus, I would really like X, Y, Z. And it's like, I can just see, you know, the Holy Spirit being like, I would love to give that to you, but um, you, your hands are full. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that that happens, but I can picture like, hey, I would love to put that in your hand, but you're going to have to let go of that. <laughs> I mean, I, I picture my wife coming up with like bags of groceries or whatever and saying, hey, will you, um, will you hand me that iced coffee? <laughs> I would love to, but um, let me get these bags out of the way first so that I can give you something. Like, but we don't think that way. We just try to want to like... I want to hold on to the world and then reach over here and grab Jesus too. But in order to make it to the garden, we have to let go of everything else. In order to make it to the garden, I'm just at the first realm. This is the realm that should be easy. Resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ should be the easiest thing for Christians to do, but we never make it here. It's the minority. Jesus had tens of thousands of followers. Eleven make it to the garden. The minority. And just dwell with him. Sit here while I go pray over here. Just sit. Just rest. Then he takes a minority of the minority. Three out of the eleven. And he says, you come with me. And he takes them a little bit further in. A little bit further in. And he says, tarry here and watch. So if this is dwelling over here. Tarry here and watch. Now I don't know if you catch the lingo here but tarry tarry here and watch jesus also tells them to tarry a little bit later on he says hey tarry here at jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high tarry until you be endued with power because we don't like to dwell much less wait (laughs) we want to run around and do all kinds of things because being busy makes us feel like we're serving the Lord. Listen, God doesn't ask you to minister for Him. He asks you to minister to Him. There is a difference. There is a difference. But we're running around, and Jesus expressly told us, tarry until you be endued with power from on high. Tarry first. Then you should be witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria and then under the uttermost parts of the earth. But first, you've got to tarry. Tarry. And guess what? There were 120 people and they were in an upper room and they were gathered together in one mind and having one accord. And then there came from heaven a sound as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the room and there appeared unto each of them cloven tongues as it was a fire. And then guess what? They opened the doors and come out and millions of people are waiting. They didn't have to go anywhere. God worked it all out because they tarried. It's about dunamis. It's about power. Power. Tarry. Wait. Because I have something I want to give you. I want to take you a little bit further. Tarry here and watch. Watch. Wait. Be sober. Be vigilant. For your adversary is the devil. Walks about as a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. Tarry and watch. 
But see, the, the context of this is, he's, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Tarry and watch. So yeah, you have the watching, the vigilance, the, the sobriety, the defending kind of attitude, but you also have watching God. Because in this place of dunamis power, part of what the Spirit is doing is He is showing you what the Father is doing. You can see the emotions of God. How does He feel about this? What is His will concerning this? What's His mind on this particular subject? That's why Paul says in Ephesians, he says, don't be unwise, but be wise, understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then he goes on to say, you know, say, don't be drunk with wine, where is an excess? Because he's talking about a sobriety of the Spirit, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody of your heart to the Lord. He is talking about you being sober in the Spirit and receiving something that will reveal what God thinks, feels, and wants you to do. So you've got dwell over here, just making it to the garden and being in His presence, resting in His finished work. And then you've got power. You've got dunamis power, being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit where you have such an experience and such an encounter with God that it overflows out of you. See, Jesus was sweating blood because something in his mind was so prevalent that it incurred a physical response, i.e. the rupturing of blood vessels into his sweat glands. Because things in your heart and your mind flow from your spirit and then they can flow out into your flesh. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the reason that I talk about tongues is not because of tongues. Because I'm going to tell you right now, a vast majority of people that can say sha-na-na-na-na have no more the Spirit of God than the person that's in the bar right now still drunk from last night. There are a lot of people that speak in tongues and they don't know God from Adam. There are a lot of people that speak in tongues and have never had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm not talking about a language. That's why people will stand up here and they'll hold their arms up and they, they smack their hands for 500 years saying, you can do it, you can do it, just start speaking. And it's like, well, they can get the language down. You can take your mouth and make any sounds you want. That doesn't mean nothing. It doesn't mean a thing. What means something is when you have a theophany or a manifestation of God in you that is so prevalent that it affects your heart, it affects your mind, it affects your will, your imagination, your consciousness, and it becomes so overwhelming that it flows out into your body and through shaking and stammering lips and then speaking in tongues. Like that's what I'm talking about. Great, you speak in tongues. I want you to speak in tongues because I don't want any good gift to be withheld from you. But I want you to understand that speaking in tongues is not the end-all, end-all. It's the gateway into something more. It's not the issue about a language. It's the issue about the experience with God that flows out into other things. I kind of wish that we would get off the tongue's fixation a little bit here and there. Like not saying that it's not important, because it is. But when you elevate that to the eminence where it's all that matters, you forget about the experience that should be producing it. You forget about the experience that should be producing it. And you're left. That's why people will look at you and look at the church and look at Pentecostals and they're like, well, she speaks in tongues every Sunday but I see her acting like a child of the devil every other day of the week. And I'm like, that's a lie. I have known people that I watched dance in the Spirit and speak in tongues and look like a crazy, awesome Pentecostal. And then I have shown up at their workplace unannounced, not to... Harass them or spy on them, but because they worked at a particular business that I had to go to, and watched them cussing somebody up one side and down the other, and I'm like, "You're lying to God and falsely representing the Spirit, and ought to be ashamed of yourself." But it doesn't have to be that extreme. Some people, some of us, we feel like act like we've got the Spirit, and there's no holiness. It's just hype. And that's one thing I hate about Pentecostalism. Oh yes, I'm Pentecostal through and through, down to the very tips of my toes, I'm Pentecostal. But I hate what Pentecostalism has become in a lot of ways. We care about the show and the service 
than we do about the holiness and the power. If you want to know how Pentecostalism started, it started as an outflow of the Wesleyan holiness movement where people were so fixated on being holy before God that it ended up carrying over into a rediscovery of the gifts of the Spirit. It started with holiness. Now we start with the gifts and we say, hey, it's the process of sanctification. It's an excuse is what it is. It's an excuse because we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to have our cake and eat it too. You know Peter in this? I've said I love Peter because he's an idiot like me. He does stupid stuff. He does. Peter does stupid stuff. And this is one of his shining moments. Jesus says, you guys are going to suffer. It's going to happen. They're going to smite the shepherd and all the sheep are going to scatter. That's going to happen. And Peter is like, hey, Jesus, I know you, you, you got it all together and usually you're right, but I think you may have missed it. I think you may have meant to say they'll smite the shepherd and all the sheep except Peter will scatter. Like you weren't specific enough. I don't want to call you wrong, but you should have showed a little more specificity because Peter ain't going to fail. Peter is the best disciple. Peter is gung-ho, ready to go. Let's make this happen. I'll go with you even to death. And Jesus looks at him, and I know it was sorrowful, but he looks at him and he says, before this night, before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter gets mad at Jesus. Speaks the more vehemently. I'm sorry, Jesus, but you're wrong. I'm not going to do that. I've got this. I'm going with you all the way through. Because Peter had to keep control. Peter had to keep his hands on it. I've got this. I'm not going anywhere. I know what the Word says, but I've got to keep control of this little area over here. And that's why I love it when Jesus comes and instead of saying, Hey, Peter, James, and John... Why are you sleeping? He says, hey, Peter, you couldn't watch one hour, but I thought you said you weren't going anywhere. Now, you can't even watch with me one hour. The party hasn't really even started yet. This is the pre-party happening, and you're already down for the count. The stuff hasn't even hit the fan yet. (laughs) You're already out. And that's part of our issue is we won't let go and let God do what he wants to do because we've got to have our hands in it. We've got to have that little bit of control. We've got to say, I've got to fashion and form this and shape this. I've, I've got to do it. It's got to be me. That's why people don't make it to the garden because they can't stop making their business deals and selling Jesus out. And that's why out of the minority that makes it to the garden, even fewer make it to receive the dunamis and the power and to walk in that greater depth because we can't let go and let God take it. We can't relinquish control. So you got dwell and you got dunamis, but then it goes one step further. Doing something with it. Because the third time he says watch and pray. Watch is a receiving, you're paying attention, you're ready. Praying is a doing something. And this is where Pentecostals suck. We like our parties. We like our good services. We like to shout. We like to, hey! But we don't like to do anything with it. We'll shout the house down. We'll have the great services. We'll run around the sanctuary. But then we don't do anything with it. We speak in tongues, but then we're not holy. (laughs) Even if we get the holiness thing kind of okay, we refuse to do anything. Man, I hate it. We would be so much better if we had a fraction of, of the spirit that we have been given and actually carrying it out. But we heap to ourselves condemnation because we get more teaching and more teaching and more teaching and more information and more good services and more spirit and more anointing, we say, because half the time I don't think we have the oil, we just have the hype. We don't have the oil, we just have the adrenaline. We don't have it, we just have the excitement and the emotional high. And then we'd say things like, I got to get a dose of the Holy Ghost. And I'm like, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. God is not a drug. He is not a heroin shot that you stick in your arm because you're not okay from your last fix. 
God is so good and dwells in you that you should be flowing in that all the time. And I'm not saying you don't need encouragement. I'm not saying you don't need uplifting or you don't need a a word. But you don't need a big name preacher to give you that word or to lay hands on you. You need to get on your face before God and experience Him for yourself. Because all are kings and priests now in the new covenant. All are. But no, we've got to have our fix. Do you know why corporate worship is so good? Why it's supposed to be so good? Have, does anybody cook? Does anybody cook? Has anybody ever made risotto? Risotto is a gift of God. Hallelujah. But you know, you know how you make risotto? I'm going to tell you. You have gr- rice, right? And you, you have the rice in and you have the broth. But you have this mixture of broth and wine, depending on how you make it. And yes, you cook out the alcohol. Don't be legalistic on me. But you, you add a little bit and you stir it. And you keep stirring it. And then you add a little bit more and you keep stirring it. And it's so actually to make risotto right, it's a little bit of an intense process because you're stirring for what seems like an eternity. But what happens is the starch on the rice rubbing together begins to get in the broth. And it causes the broth to thicken. And that's what creates the sauce. Is it was there all the time on the individual kernels of rice, but the rubbing together gets it out in the mix. In church, in a corporate gathering, you're supposed to have the goods. You're supposed to have the goods. You're supposed to be overflowing and dripping with the anointing and carrying the presence of God. He's supposed to be in you. And you're supposed to be close enough to Him and have enough of His Spirit that when you come here, we worship and we dance and we have a little bit of rubbing together and the Spirit that's in you and the Spirit that's in me comes off and kind of gets in the room and gets in the mix. And that's when the air, the broth gets thick and we start creating some flavors going on Because something is happening because of what's in you and what's in me. But if you only got one grain of rice in there, you can move it around and move it around and it ain't going to do diddly squat because it ain't got nothing to rub against. And what happens is we have a congregation come together and you got two or three people that got the goods and they're, they're rubbing nothing. And so your service is dead and empty and your broth is broken, and you got nothing. Because half of us haven't made it to the garden, and out of the half that's made it to the garden, half of us don't want to go any further, and out of the half that doesn't want to go any further, or the half that actually does go further, there's another half that doesn't want to do anything with it. And we're left empty. And we're left empty. I'm not condemning anybody, because I've walked through this. I've walked through this. I've wrestled with these same things. And I ask myself all the time, why does church suck sometimes? Like, God, where are you at? And I, I promise, if I go to one more service, and there have been some good services, and we've had some great services, so don't take this away. But if I go to one more service where I hear somebody say something about the glory of God and there's nothing, I'm going to scream and pull my hair out. Because I feel like if the glory of God is there, we don't have to announce it. We don't have to announce it. Like, Jesus. I know in our society that you just don't know what people identify as or not. But I don't have to walk around with a sign on my forehead that says, hey, I'm a guy. Like, you, you can just, you just see that. Like, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's why I don't buy into people's delusions about what they say that they are. Like, you're either a man or you're a woman. That's it. You're either, you're either a man or you're a woman. I don't even mean to bring this in. But you don't have to walk around with a sign on your forehead that says you're a man or you're a woman. Now, if you go through all of these surgical changes and stuff, it can start being kind of difficult to, to determine on some people. But the way God made you, you can, you can just tell. I'm a man or I'm a woman. And this is, might be a poor example, but I don't care. But if the glory is there, we don't have to put a sign on it. I mean, I don't think that Moses needed a sign above the burning bush that said, hey, something's happening here. 
Like, I mean, the, the, million, the, 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 the hundreds of thousands of people after they came out of the upper room, did they have a sign and say, hey, something's going on here. Like, <laughs> when Jesus told the man that had been laying on the ground for 30-something years and he got up and walked, did that man need a sign that said, hey, God did something here? Like, no, you just see it. But we've been settling for so much less. You know what I mean? Like, part of me thinks that the reason we don't have the power that we should have is because we've settled for less than. I'm like, God, there was one time, and I I confess, there was one time when I first started in ministry where I said a couple of things that God didn't say. I had a strong feeling, and I I didn't say, thus saith the Lord. But I said some things, and I was like, well, I, I feel like God's saying this. I feel like God's saying this. And he really wasn't, but I was trying to flesh out that process. And if you're going to flesh out that process, you're going to make mistakes. Hallelujah. Just open yourself up, because if you're not willing to make mistakes, you're never going to do anything. So I I made some mistakes. But one day I was like, God, I, I, I don't hear you. Why aren't you speaking to me? And the answer that I got, because he did speak to me on this one, the answer that I got is, why do I have to? You're saying that I am. Why should God show up? If we, we sing a song and we drop a key and we're like, woo! It's like, God's here. Do you feel His glory? And it's like, why should I show up? They say I'm already there. Waste my time. I don't want to beat you up, church, but I just want more. Look, two or three are gathered. Yes, He's there. But I'm talking about the manifest that God is omnipresent. You can go anywhere. I can point to the globe and say God is here. And yes, there's truth to it. But I'm talking about His glory. I'm talking about the tangibly perceptible manifestation of God's glory in a place. And if we keep saying He's there and His glory isn't there, why should He show up? Or if we keep saying God said and God hath not said, why should He speak? I don't want that, church. And I'm on a tangent and didn't plan to go here. (laughs) I don't want that, church. And I know you don't either. I know that you want the real thing, the real McCoy. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for the real McCoy. We're going to do, I don't know. We're going to do something. I don't know what yet. We're going to pray. That's what we're going to do. And the first thing we're going to pray is we're going to play congregationally for the manifestation of God's glory in this house. Not just today, but perpetually. I want it to be, you ever walk in a place and it's just, it just feels holy? It just feels holy. I've, I've walked in some places and they just, you can just feel it. Or you ever walk through a graveyard and it just feels spooky? It just has like an aura or a presence about it. You know what I'm talking about? That's called the Newman. It's the spirit. The, the atmosphere. I want this church to get to such a place that you walk in and you feel it. You feel God. Whether there's a congregation meeting here or not, you just walk in and you just feel the weight of His glory. So I'm challenging you, church. If you don't feel it, keep your mouth shut. If He didn't say it, keep your mouth shut. If you didn't see it, keep your mouth shut. Pray for the real thing. And I'm going to try my best to do the same. I'm not going to operate in emotionalism. I'm not going to operate in hype because hype ain't real. I think about Friday Night Lights, Booby Miles. You ever seen that movie? Booby Miles. They said, should we believe the hype? And he said, there ain't no hype. Hype ain't real. Booby Miles is all real, baby. (laughs) I ain't interested in hype. Hype's fake. Hype's getting excited about nothing and trying to make people believe it's something. Hype is like Tennessee going into that Alabama football game yesterday. (laughs) No, I, I ain't buying hype. I want the real thing. I want the real thing.